the music team. And this room up here, you, you noticed in your bulletin perhaps that if you have musical talent or a singing gift, you, you, I can't begin to tell you how the preacher is blessed by the music and how it prepares and how John manages, I think, to pick, I think he picks those songs, to pick the songs that go so well with the sermon. I tell you, I prepare, when I prepare the Old Testament reading to be read on the days that I preach, I have a very good reason for doing, for choosing the ones that I choose. Sadly enough, I didn't give enough of the portion of the Old Testament text this morning to our brother to read, uh, because what we didn't see at the very end there, due to my failure, is Lot's wife turned back and turned to a pillar of salt. And that Old Testament message reverberates a little bit into our to our time together this week. So I wanted to mention that. Apologize to you, Randy, for leaving that out, and to you all, and uh, to have that in mind. We are in the second of our series in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. We're having the adult class downstairs on this epistle to the Hebrews. We brought it upstairs for a few weeks. Be back downstairs next week as Todd will lead in verses 13 through the end of chapter 6. And that'll be very good to hear. So again, I encourage you to get yourself downstairs to the adult class if you can. We can go ahead and get that up there. A well-worn warning. If we could get the text up, I'll just read through it. Hebrews 6, chapter 4, I'm sorry, chapter 6 this week, verses 4 through 12. A well-worn warning. For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But, if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation... For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises." The conclusion of the verses in the text we dealt with last week, verses 1 through 3, is that the Hebrew Christians had not yet fully realized Jesus as Christ. The old covenant with which they were very familiar had fully informed their messianic expectation. Messiah is another word for Christ, which means anointed. The law and the prophets had directed their gaze to the coming 
of the fulfillment of the promises God made to Abram back in Genesis. Those promises would progressively mature through a series of covenants, particularly the Mosaic Covenant, which is the covenant with Moses, also known as the Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Covenant. In the, in the Mosaic or Old Covenant, God developed a sacrificial system to deal with sin and to establish a safe relationship to God. God also decreed the three anointed offices of prophet, priest, and king, through which he communicated and enacted his plan and his will, his requirements for holiness, and his sovereignty in the covenant relationship. Jesus is the anointed prophet greater than Moses. Jesus is the anointed great high priest. And Jesus is the anointed king of kings. That is, Jesus is Christ. He is the kept promise of God in human flesh. And simultaneously, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. He is God-man. We briefly considered the biological transformation of the butterfly, emerging from its chrysalis fully formed. However, you recall the end of the butterfly's abdomen was stuck in the chrysalis. In order to fully spread its wings and fly, the butterfly needed careful, surgically precise human intervention. And this provided a very useful analogy for the author's intent to remedy the immature Christology of the Hebrews to whom he wrote. They were stuck in or hung up on the elementary doctrines of Christ. And we reviewed the contrast between the rather juvenile apprehension they had of Jesus and the great high priest, founder, and perfecter of our faith reality of Jesus, which the author unfurls in the remaining chapters of this letter. We found ourselves, like this original audience, challenged to consider our conception of Jesus Christ. For we also are opposed on many sides and encounter many obstacles on the path of discipleship to Jesus. To continue to lay a foundation of resistance or endurance on an inadequate Jesus and therefore an inadequate gospel is to attempt apostasy to dull of hearing people. Dull of hearing means not laying hold of what they must know about Jesus. I was encouraged to hear our sister just talk about Jesus. It's the one name that they needed to know down in that classroom. So we resume our study here at the fourth verse. Now the four of verse four connects what follows to verse three, which reads, if God permits. God must permit going on to maturity. God must empower and enable that. Why? For if it doesn't happen, there is the dreadful prospect of verses 4 through 6. So it is helpful to treat the 4, which begins verse 4, as a because. Because of the impossibility of repentance that verse 6 threatens. And so this is why we need God to do this. 
Because if he doesn't, because if it doesn't happen, the threat of apostasy looms large. Can we have a slide that might be a little hard to see according to uh, what Barbara was telling me? That next, okay. So, I have the Moses maze up here. Verses 4 through 6 present a potential maze of misinterpretation. Can't really see it up there, but there's little Moses in his tar pitch sealed basket, which he was floated down the river in. And then down at the end, we have Pharaoh's daughter finding Moses. Okay, so we have the start and the finish. Sorry for the lack of clarity in that. It's not going to make or break your understanding. But perhaps some of you have completed or attempted to complete a maze like this, this one up here. They come in whole little books, right? And you begin with your pencil at the designated start, and then you often run into several walled-off paths on the way to the finish. You have to start over. You restart a few times, and you have lines all over the place. You'll be... Next slide, please, Barbara. You'd be surprised, perhaps, to discover that if you start at the finish and work backwards, you seldom get stuck in the maze. You begin at the end of the one successful path and thereby avoid the dead ends. Using that approach, let's begin at verse 9. The author says that despite what we have said in verses 4 through 8, which we'll get to, we have confidence, we feel sure that you are on the right path. We know that the things that pertain to or accompany or belong to salvation are yours. Okay, we're confident of that. Does the text indicate what those things are? Well, verse 10. God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. Now, at first glance only, this could be understood as a form of works righteousness. One of the very things the author wants the recipients to stay away from. But to the contrary... It describes the intimate relationship of our Heavenly Father who takes notice of and is pleased with the love these people had for Him. Love that issues forth in love and ministry to one another. It's what our beloved brother Paul wrote about in Galatians 5, 6. Faith working through love. What rich encouragement to this church, despite their immaturity in the doctrine of Christ, they have their first love intact. God is working in them. He's blessing them. They're manifesting those better things. Well, better than what? Better than what? Well, better than things, better things than that which the text of verse 6 details about falling away in such a way that makes repentance impossible. Verse uh, verse 6 states emphatically that the person who falls away from Jesus cannot be renewed to repentance. That person is irredeemable. The text is crystal clear on this. That person has apostatized. As the text at Hebrews 10.26 says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire. By turning away from Christ, falling away, that person is saying, Christ is not enough. 
His sacrifice accomplished nothing. I must return to the Mosaic law in, in the case of this original audience. And then in verses 7 8, the author refers to land that benefits from rain and the way that rain was intended to benefit the land. If the land received the rain and produces a crop, it receives a blessing from God. If not, it is burned up. So now that we've, we've backed into verse 4 through 6 and realized the gravity of this warning, almost suffocating under its weight, we quite naturally wonder just who is the author addressing? Well, he is addressing those whom he believes better things about. Things that accompany salvation. He is addressing this warning about apostasy to the same people towards whom he feels sure of salvation fruit in verse 9. The finish where we started. He is warning Christians. It is fair and right to admit that there are good scholars who have come to a different conclusion as to the subjects of this warning. On the one hand are those who insist that it speaks to those who have not yet fully committed themselves to Christ. They are not Christian people. They've sat under good preaching. The things listed in verses 4 through 5, which I'll get very specific about here in, in just a moment. The thinking of the group on this hand is that people can reach a place where they have basically, basically been exposed to every good Christian thing and yet will not believe. They will not genuinely place their faith in Christ. And the argument persists. God gives them over to hopeless unbelief. They cannot repent again. On the other hand, are those scholars who take exactly the opposite position, which is that these are undeniably regenerate people. They are saved. They born again. Which, of course, leads to the rather haunting specter can a Christian actually lose his or her salvation? Let's review each position with the illumination of the inspired text. Verses 4 and 5 feature three descriptive terms to describe the target audience. They have been enlightened. They have tasted three things. And they have shared in or been part takers of another. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have tasted the goodness of the word of God. They have tasted the powers of the age to come. They have shared in or been partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now, those who take the first position I outlined insist that these terms, enlightenment, tasting, and sharing, Describe a limited experience, not a conversion, but a significant spiritual experience nonetheless. They underst their understanding has been somewhat enlightened. That is, they have learned of Christ. They have tasted, but not fully digested the word of God, the heavenly gift, and the powers of the age to come. Some have pointed out Matthew 27:34 in support of that opinion and I'll, I'll turn there Matthew 
They offered Jesus, I'll start at verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him, Jesus, wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And so there, they say, is some justification for this word taste, meaning, well, not to really fully engage. Not to really drink it in. They haven't really drunk in the preaching. They haven't drunk in the salvation message. So just as Jesus tasted something, so have these unbelievers tasted those things which were intended to lead them to salvation. So so this opinion goes. In his experience, though, Jesus' tasting was met with the immediate rejection of the mixture they offered. It never really made it much past his lips. The tasting in these verses in Hebrews speaks of something much more meaningful. Otherwise, the warning that follows the experience of tasting would make no sense. That's a severe warning for sort of a taste once spit it out kind of rejection. Not only so, but the same word for tasting here in chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, is also found in chapter 2, verse 9 of this same letter where we see Jesus, quote, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now that taste resulted in three days in the tomb. So it is clearly a metaphor for something more profound and a full experience of death. The author is using terminology that would not apply to a casual experience of Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed. He goes on to say they held on to their confidence. Well, that same word enlightenment is used to describe the kind of experience which leads to authentic Christian fruit in that verse. Their experience of having been enlightened in Hebrews chapter 10 is an experience that led to authentic Christian fruit. Paul prayed that the Ephesian church would have, quote, the eyes of their heart enlightened so that they would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power to us who believe. Once again, that is not a partial experience of Christ. And neither is this text in Hebrews 6, 4 through 5, speaking of some limited experience. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 speaks to those who, quote, share in the heavenly calling. The same word as we have here in Hebrews chapter 6. In the 3, 1 passage, the author addresses those who have shared in the heavenly calling as holy brothers. So that same word enlightenment is used to speak to Christian people. So we have ample evidence from within this letter that a consistent use of like terms compels us to accept that the warning is addressed to people who have had a saving conversion experience. Here is something to digest as well. What does an unbeliever fall away from? What does an unbeliever fall away from? He or she had no real standing from which to fall away. And how does being renewed again apply to an unbeliever? 
there is no initial episode which qualifies for again status. If I tell you I fell down the stairs again, you would rightly assume I have fallen down the stairs before. If I said that I fell down the stairs again for the first time, you would rightly wonder if I bumped my head really hard in the course of that fall. We can suppose that if the text limited the hypothetical scenario to one thing, we may more easily endorse the unbeliever point of view. Perhaps if the verses there only read those who have been enlightened and simply ended there. One well-known commentator preacher, whom I respect but won't name, said, First of all, we should notice that this passage makes no references at all to salvation. The enlightenment spoken of here has to do with intellectual perception of spiritual, biblical truth. It means to be mentally aware of something, to be instructed, informed. It carries no connotation of response, of acceptance or rejection, belief or disbelief. These Jews were enlightened but not saved. Consequently, they were in danger of losing all opportunity of being saved and becoming apostate. But to have these five details set down in inspired writing militates against such a position. The heavenly gift, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, the power of the age to come, the enlightenment. It reminds me of the old Adam West Burt Wood Batman series of the late 60s. You know, Batman and Robin would start fighting, right? The bad guys. And then the TV screen lit up with this cartoon animation of pow, you know, bam, zap, right? Biff, kapow. You might remember those. John Owen and John Calvin held to the opinion that this text was the test of whether a person has saving faith. Those without, they would say, fell away and have no hope of repentance. Now, I know you don't tug on Superman's cape. You don't spit into the wind. You don't pull the mask off the old Lone Ranger. And you don't question John Calvin. (laughs) But, the context of this letter in the verses we have focused in this morning as well as the chapters that follow, resist those conclusions. If you are truly in Christ, this warning is for you. Two more doctrinal morsels for us. (coughs) We who think in the doctrinal categories of the Reformed faith, so-called, and in the more recent exposition of the Reformed position known as New Covenant Theology, hold tenaciously to what Calvin insisted is the biblically accurate precept, irresistible grace. Right? This is the I in the acronym TULIP. Simply put, God's grace towards those he elects to salvation is irresistible. If one is in the crosshairs of God's saving grace, that one will be saved after hearing the gospel once or after the twentieth time, at the time of God's choosing, kapow! This is the sovereign grace of God. 
Sinner one moment, saint the next. How can we simultaneously hold to that and to the notion that an unbeliever can be in danger of losing all opportunity of being saved and becoming apostate? The answer is self-evident. We cannot. And we must not. And what shall we do with the following passage in 1 Corinthians? As I go there, 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, I'm going to read verses 9 and 10, verse 14. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10, and 14. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Verse 14, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Natural man is another designation for an unbeliever. If Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 is addressing unbelievers, natural man who cannot receive the things of the Spirit, how can it be argued that those that cannot receive spiritual things place themselves beyond the possibility of repentance by not receiving the gospel? Isn't that the same as to say those who are not born from above cannot be born from above? New parents among us, and there are a few, once they place the baby in the nursery, will place a monitor there so they can hear the baby, the baby and be startled at every slight noise. Perhaps you will have had the odd experience of your monitor picking up something on another short wave frequency. Another baby monitor in the same house, a cell phone nearby. This happens. Unbelievers who are around the church and church life are like that. They have the monitor in the right place, but they cannot pick up the right signal. But we don't smash the monitor so that it never receives the right signal. Some uptight fathers may. right? If the conditions are right, the monitor will receive the right signal. But being born from above is something like that. So this brings us to our summary task, which is to ask and answer... Why does the author of Hebrews speak to genuine believers in this way? Why does he warn them with such language as this? It's horrifying. should be hair-raising. The Holy Spirit inspired warnings like this as a mean to an end for redeemed people. Warnings and encouragements abound in this letter, and they often follow one upon the other within a few sentences or a paragraph. You'll see this throughout the letter of the, to the Hebrews. God is doing something in this. It's not coincidence. God uses both warnings and encouragements in his work of keeping us till the end. Think about this a bit with me. If God has sovereignly chosen to save us and preserve us till the end, and the scripture is clear that he has, then does he need to use encouragements in the process? He, he could keep us to the end without, I imagine, if he so willed. But he has willed that encouragements are one of the means to preserve us to the end. Likewise with warnings. 
God uses a warning like this to preserve us in the course he has chosen. Consider the example of Paul when he was sailing to Rome. This is in Acts chapter 27. I think this is a helpful practical example that can open this up for us a bit. So there was a, Paul is going to Rome and there's a, to give his testimony before Caesar, ultimately, is the plan. But there's a tremendous storm at sea on the way. Okay? And sailors were seeking to escape the ship, for they were under considerable duress. I'm going to read a few portions, verses 21 to 24 and verses 30 to 32. Verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and have not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you, take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted all those who sail with you. God has, take heart, God has granted all of those who sail with you. But then over in verse 30 we read, And as the sailors seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship and let it go. On the one hand, God granted Paul all the men that sailed with him with no conditions. God said, All of these men are going to be with you. But then Paul warns, If you don't stay on the ship, you cannot be saved. So which is it? It's both. Paul encourages with his take heart statement and he warns with his unless you stay on the ship statement. To the Christian, the very idea that he or she would crucify Christ again and hold Christ up to contempt is horrific. To hear that warning breaks the heart and dope slaps the sluggishness out of a child of God. You know, as an unbeliever, I used to tell a joke about the crucifixion. And I count it as my greatest sin, among my many great sins. I did it in ignorance, but even so. This verse tells me, Pat, if you walk away from Jesus, you're telling that joke all over again. That rules out apostasy for me. Perish the thought. Warnings like this remove apostasy as an option for every child of God. God, having designed us, knows better than anyone how both encouragement and warning function in the psyche, in the soul, and in the mind of the believer to accomplish what he has decreed is going to take place. Thus saith the Lord is followed by thus doeth the saint. We don't need to dwell on the question, can a Christian lose his or her salvation? The answer to that is no, as so much scripture attests to. And if you have doubts about that, either I or another mature brother or sister who understands the word and can rightly divide it will be happy to comfort you from the scripture. 
Warnings and encouragements inoculate us against a disease that God has determined ahead of time we will not be infected with. God, warnings and encouragements inoculate us against a disease that God has determined ahead of time we will not be infected with. We don't want to overlook verses 11 and 12. Here's the gist of what the text says. We warn you and encourage you in this way so that each one of you will crave the full assurance of hope, which is yours to have. We won't settle for you settling to be sluggish. We want to see each of you inherit the promises of God through faith and patience. God promised blessings, and these include His presence and a multiplication of people that would love Him and love one another. This was His promise to Abram, who became Abraham, the father of many nations. We are part of the many nations. Chapter 6 also tells us God wants to know the unchangeable character of His purpose. We'll be learning next week. God wants us to know the unchangeable character of His purpose. So, He swore by Himself to bring it about because He could swear by none greater than Himself. He said, I will keep my promise, so help me me. Let us thank God this morning that He uses the foolishness of preaching Christ crucified to save sinners. And let us also thank Him that He uses what looks at times like the foolishness of warnings to keep saints. These verses we have studied do not say a true Christian can fall away, and these verses do not say a true Christian has ever fallen away. These verses do the work God intended them to do. They sanctify us by warning us and encouraging us to a mature laying hold of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who is constantly interceding for us. A couple of weeks ago when Seth was teaching downstairs, he said something that just stays with me because it sums things up. Our maturity, our sanctification is intentional. It is intentional. These verses, these warnings, these encouragements are for those that are not being intentional. They are not seeing, they have not laid, not laying hold of Christ in a more mature way. Christ is everything. He's not just the beginning of our salvation. He's the beginning. He's the, the here, now, and the later of it. Our conception of Jesus can't be big enough. We can't have a big enough Jesus. We can't. But we do. But we do. Right? God also has something to say to the unbeliever this morning. And perhaps he already has. But friend, you have some unfinished business with God before you finish your time on this side of the cemetery. The Jesus I speak of and that we all sing of this morning, the anointed one, he has an anointing for you also. He will anoint you with the oil of gladness. He will rescue you from your fear and dislike of him, which you must admit is choking you. Today, you too could pass from spiritual death to life, will you? God help you to confess your sin to Him and believe in Jesus, whom He sent from heaven to deliver you from the power of and your bondage to the evil one. For Christ's sake, amen. And we'll have the worship music team come up.